back on air. Welcome to episode 16 of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. It's the podcast that celebrates the lives and times of the one Ashes Test Wonders, those cricketers who played in only one Ashes Test. The 1985 Ashes series in England featured four cricketers who can hold this claim to fame. We've already heard from Yorkshire legend Arnie Sidebottom and Jonathan Agnew of Leicestershire, England and TMS. And you can catch up with those episodes on your podcast platform of choice. And feel free to follow, like or subscribe if you like what you hear. You can also find bonus clips from the likes of Ian Chappell, Neil Harvey, Aggers, Stephen Chalk and David Gower and all of our One Ashes Test Wonders on the YouTube channel. Just search for Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. But now we need to get the Aussie side of the 1985 story and devote the next two episodes to the two men who played their One Ashes Test in the same game of that series. The Australians of 1985 were led by Alan Border, the man that would go on to lead them in 93 test matches. But the touring party went through a few different incarnations before they arrived in England. Several of the players had signed up for Rebel Tours in South Africa, and although Kerry Packer induced some to reverse their decisions, three players found their path to England blocked. And this included Terry Alderman, who would go on to take 41 wickets in England four years later. Chaos then turned into absurdity as two of the three replacements revealed that they too had signed up with the Rebels. But thankfully for us, this opened the door for Dave Gilbert to join the touring party. Dave made his test debut in the sixth test of the series at the Oval, and we will tell his story next time around. His first Ashes memory will be familiar to followers of this podcast. It was the 1970-71 series when John Snow hit Terry Jenner in the head with a, a bouncer, uh, which led to Ray Illingworth taking the English team off the field. So I was 10 years of age. My father took myself and my brother to the match. And uh, we were actually down in the corner of the SCG where Snow came down at the end of his over, having hit Jenner in the head and Jenner had to retire hurt. And Snow came down towards the fence and he was wearing one of those old sort of uh, terry toweling hats and uh, as he got closer to the fence you know the crowd was booing him uh, uh, big time and snowy took his hat off and started sort of waving it like he was conducting an orchestra and that was cue for the uh, crowd to then pelt him with beer cans plenty more stories to come from dave on the next episode but today belongs to murray bennett the left arm spinner from St George in Sydney. He would play the last of his three test matches in that same oval test, replacing his New South Wales spin partner and good friend, the late Bob Dutchie Holland. I don't see any reason not to bring him into the attack immediately. Ladies and gents, Mr Murray Bennett. Murray Bennett was a left-arm off-spinner for St George, New South Wales and Ramsbottom, who played 67 first-class games, taking 157 wickets at 30.92 and scoring 1,437 runs 
at 23.95. He played three tests and eight ODIs for Australia. His one and only Ashes test came at the Oval in 1985. Murray, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thanks, Graham. Good to be on board. Very good to have you on the show. Listen, Ian Chappell told me that playing for Ramsbottom improved his drinking and swearing, but put his cricket back about six months. How was your time <laughs> playing over there? Uh, well, it probably the first two was probably a tick. Yes, it did improve those situations. But I must admit, as a cricketing experience, it was really uh, superb, you know, and I really gained a lot of benefit from playing at Ramsbottom. In fact, I still uh, regularly are in contact with some of the Ramsbottom guys. Jane, my wife Jane and I, Jane spent that summer with me there. We had the most fantastic time. We've been back three or four times to Ramsbottom since 1984. So, in fact, took a couple of their children. They joined us at Ramsbottom a couple of years ago when we were over there on an extended trip in the UK. So it's a wonderful experience and part of our life, yes. And for those of you who don't know you, how would you describe yourself as a player in your cricketing days? I was a very accurate left-arm spinner. I wasn't as quick as Derek Underwood, but I based my bowling on accuracy. I wasn't a big turner of the ball, but I guess like Derek Underwood, if there was something in the wicket from a turning perspective, that really helped my cause. And, you know, I was a solid batsman. I scored uh, centuries in, not in uh, first class cricket, but in other cricket, first grade and so on, and had a good season with the bat for Ramsbottom. So, you know, I was a pretty solid number seven, number eight batsman. I would describe myself as not a, a flashy cricketer, but as a good, solid, all-round cricketer. What about Ashes cricket? What are your first memories of Ashes cricket? My first memories of Ashes cricket go back to about 1965-66. There was an English player, Bob Barber, who absolutely destroyed the Australian attack in Sydney. He got 180-odd in very, very quick time, and he rather caught my imagination. We were away on holidays up the coast. My father was a very keen cricket watcher we were watching that on the tv and as i say i was quite taken with uh, bob barber and then the other thing that really caught my imagination at that time was doug walters was a young batsman in the australian side and he scored and i'm testing my memory here but he got a century in two tests in a row 150 and 100 or something like that in two tests in a row so he immediately became my australian hero but so Barber was a, a, a hero yeah. of mine as well. And did you dream about playing for Australia when you were a young lad and touring England and playing in the Ashes? Look, I think so. I mean, um, my father, as I said, was a very keen watcher of cricket and listener to cricket. And I remember him having the old radio set up in bed. He'd listen to John Arlott and uh, Alan McGilvray calling the test from uh, the UK. And on those particular nights, I was able to... Uh, take mum's spot in the bed and she'd we'd swap beds and, and I'd uh, get in a bed next to dad. But I think I only ever heard the first 15 or 20 minutes, but dad would stay up till like tea. They're my early memories. So did your father get you into cricket as well as a young boy in terms of playing cricket? How, how did that start? Well, I played soccer, or as you guys call it, football, when I was about seven. And then all the soccer team went over and joined the cricket team. I think as the story goes, my father came, he was in real estate at the time and worked on a Saturday, but he came down one Saturday and had a bit of a glimpse and was rather embarrassed with what he saw because I was sort of digging in the dirt and not really interested in the cricket. So <laughs> he decided uh, during the off-season that mum and dad took me into town, we bought a little cricket set and he sort of taught me how to play a forward defence and so on. And the next year, I think 
I didn't get many runs, but they couldn't get me out. So that was sort of the starting point. And then I didn't really start to bowl until, you know, much further down the track. But, yeah, he, he was a wonderful supporter of mine. But uh, he actually followed me on a tour to India. He went to India. And, in fact, I was in Ramsbottom. I know we're getting away from the topic, but I was in Ramsbottom at the time and he rang to say I'd been picked in a one-day side for Australia to go to India. And I thought, oh, beautiful. And he said, you've got to be back in Australia by such and such a date, et cetera, et cetera. I'd been 12th man for Australia, but I hadn't actually played for Australia at that point. But anyway, he said, and I'm going to go. I said, you're going to go to India on your own? I said, you're kidding, aren't you? And he said, I said, why would you do that? He said, well, it might be the only time you play for Australia, so I thought I should be there to watch. <laughs> he didn't have much confidence in me. At that yeah, time. right. I mean, you tell me how you, you developed your cricket, but you played your grade cricket for St. George, didn't you? I just came up through the junior ranks, played all my cricket in the St. George area and all the junior representative sides. And then I think when I was in my last year in primary school, I got picked in the New South Wales primary school side. And that was really the first time I bowled any left arm spin. So they had me in the side uh, batting and bowling a bit of left arm spin. And then, you know, as as luck would have it, I um, went up to St. George when I was about 15 and played a season in fifth grade and then went to second grade. And after about four games, I was in first grade at about just on 17 years of age and played 20 years in first grade. So and I'm still involved with the St. George Club to this day. It's been a long career with the one club, which I'm very proud of. And when you first joined St. George, were you aware of the history of the club and all those amazing players? Obviously, Bradman, number one, but Bill Watson, who we featured on this podcast, Ray Linwell, Norm O'Neill. And were any of those players around to help the youngsters? I'm not sure that I was fully aware of that history at the time as a 15-year-old, but I used to go up and watch them on a Saturday afternoon. And I was very fortunate, Brian Booth, he played till he was well into his about 43 or so. And so his last four seasons in first grade were about my first four seasons. So I got a chance to play with Brian. But very soon, I think I became very aware of the history of the club, the great Bill O'Reilly, who I was lucky enough to meet. And he used to take a very active interest in me when I was playing for New South Wales and always pushing my barrow to play for Australia and all that sort of good <laughs> stuff. The boys used to call him Uncle Bill, you know, for me when uh, I was his protege, if you like. But uh, yeah, I became very familiar with that history and uh, very proud of it. Then moving on through your cricketing career, it's I think you were 26 when you made your first class debut for New South Wales. I imagine it was very hard to get into the team at that point. Yeah, yeah, there was always sort of some spinners. And so I'd played 10 years in first grade at that stage. So I was a fairly experienced first grade player. I'd, they used to have representative sides for New South Wales that were called the Colts. They were under 23s. And I captained that side two years in a row. So I'd had a quite a bit of exposure to the fellows who were representing the state. I played a lot against them and with some of them. It was sort of somewhat belated in some ways, but I was also then well prepared. What about yeah. your, your debut season then? What are your memories of that season? Because there were certainly some standout performances, weren't there? Yeah, well, the wicket I played on for St George at Hurstville was a very flat, non-spinning wicket. So immediately, the SCG at that time, the Sydney Cricket Ground, was a real turning wicket. It really uh, assisted me in um, coming into the side, you know, and I think, the, I don't know the stats, but I know that I had a pretty good breakout season and we actually won the Sheffield Shield, which was the first time they'd won the Shield for 17 years in New South Wales. You know, I had a bit of success with the bat and, you know, I just felt very comfortable in what I was doing. And then I got picked to go to Zimbabwe at the end of that season, which was 
slightly interesting story, Graham, but I heard that there was an under-25 side going to Zimbabwe. And I thought, that's rotten luck. I've had a pretty good year. I'm actually 26 going on 27. So uh, when the team was announced, I was in it. I thought, oh, my goodness, they've made a mistake. They think I'm a under-25. So How'd your passport? I was anticipating a call to say, uh, thanks, Murray, but we're going to have to leave you behind. But the long and the short of it was that I was able to go ahead with the tour and they changed the name to the Young Australians rather than the under-25. <laughs> so that's a bit of, uh, bit of trivia for you. Well, yeah, just looking at that season, I mean, you mentioned your stats. I mean, you started off like an absolute train. You took 23 wickets at 21 in your first five and 38 wow. wickets at 28 overall in that first season. So, but just from, a, you know, just to bring this back to kind of England and the Ashes, do you remember that game you played against the tour in England side? Because you had an excellent game there as well. Yeah, it came up in conversation the other day because I remember, I think I got nine wickets in the match or something like that, eight it or is, nine wickets yeah. in the match. I know that I got five wickets in one innings. And Chris Tabaray, who was rather renowned for very dour batsmanship, was he got 120-odd or something, absolutely smashed them everywhere. And I think I, I might have eventually got him out. I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I know I, I got Gower out. I know he skied one off me and got out. So, yeah, I had a, it was a really, really good game for me with the ball, which was very exciting at the time. And, and to play against a touring English side, I was, I was thrilled. Do you remember getting Jeff Cook caught for 99 in that game? I oh, did. I? Now that you <laughs> mention it, that does stick out. I think he, I think he might have chipped one up into the covers or something. Yeah. But uh, what yeah. about that? 99, eh? What's that like as a bowler? I don't know if you've ever done that before, but do you have any sympathy at all for the batsman or are you just pleased to see them go? I think very pleased to see them go, actually, Graham. <laughs> I mean, I'd hate to get out for 99. I know I've been out for 98, but I'd hate to get out for 99. But then again, you know, what the hell? <laughs> All right, well, let's just talk about New South Wales. So you had six seasons playing for New South Wales. What were your highlights of your, of your time playing there? I was actually, there was something on um, Facebook recently. There was a picture of the side that won that shield in 1982-83. And I noted, looking at it, there was 12, the 12 were pictured after the game. They're all test players. I was lucky we played with, I played in three shield wing sides in that six years. I was fortunate enough to captain New South Wales in my last season. I was having some knee issues, which sort of, you know, probably curtailed my career a little bit at that stage. But there was other people coming through. Peter Taylor, who's a similar age to me, he came into the side, more or less replaced me at that time. Wonderful players, you know. Steve Rickson is a keeper. Rick McCosker was captain of that Shield side. Rick was a low, and I, he's a mate to this day. A number of those guys are, are good mates. Stephen Smith, not the current Stephen Smith, mm -hmm. but... He was a dynamic batsman, John Dyson. Yeah, there was a lot of them. One of the yeah. Trevor Chapel, the youngest of the Chapel boys. So a lot of good players. Mike Whitney, Jeff Lawson. What about the captaincy? Did you enjoy that season uh, being captain? Yes, I did. I captained a lot for St George and I'd had captaincy experience. And to get the honour of being able to captain for New South Wales was fantastic. I probably didn't bowl as well as I could have at that time. So I was just struggling a little bit in that regard. But that took a little bit of the pleasure off of Graham. But look, it was a great honour. I look back on it. I think I was a good captain as far as I'm fairly positive and I'm fairly level-headed. So um, it was a great opportunity. Let's have a little chat about your international career. You've already mentioned that you were selected for that one-day tour to India and your, your father went over there. What are your memories yeah. of that tour and how, how special was it? Oh, look, I, I don't know whether you've been to India, but it's one hell of an experience. Yeah. We played six one-day games and we played... 
I travelled all over India, and it's a big country. I actually broke my thumb not long before going, and again, I thought I may not have been allowed to go, but I, was, I missed the first three games and played the last three. It was my right thumb on my right hand, so it didn't affect my bowling. It was hot, <laughs> very hot, very dusty. Sanal Gavaskar was still playing, Kapil Dev. They had a pretty strong side at that time, and we it was a really good tussle. But, you know, I got a, I bowled pretty well in the games I played in. I I went for, you know, between high 30s to low 40s. I don't, you know, as far as off my 10 overs, got a few wickets. So I think I was I came away quite pleased with the experience, you know. Yeah, and you felt comfortable in that environment around, you know, suddenly you're in the Australian team. Were there a lot of nerves around? There's no doubt you're nervous. I think playing in another country sometimes might be a help rather than playing in front of your home crowd. But again, I've been fortunate to go to Zimbabwe uh, and with a few of those guys. I also was 12th man in uh, Greg Chappell, Rod Marsh, Dennis Lilly's last two tests. So again, you're around the dressing room. I knew a few of the people, not really well, but a little, a little bit. And there was a few New South Wales guys on that tour. So to answer your question, I think Whilst there were, I was nervous, I think I sort of felt reasonably comfortable. Then came the summer of 84-85 in Australia and the, the best side in the world were in town, weren't they, the West Indies. You first played against them, correct me if I'm wrong, for New South Wales. Do you remember that game? I know I got six, six wickets in one innings. I'm not sure. I think, again, I'm, I might have got nine for the match. I'm not certain, but I definitely got eight for the match, did I? And I know the uh, wicket was a real turner. It was a... Not a well-prepared wicket, and we beat them. But, look, it was an outstanding effort against a side like that, you know, and I know that Dutchie Holland and myself had a big advantage in playing on that sort of a wicket. Well, just the calibre of the players that you got out, obviously, because they had such a good side, but you got Viv Richards in both innings, you know, Clive Lloyd, Haynes, and that six for 32 in the second innings were your best first-class figures, I think, weren't they? I think that's right, Yeah. yeah. Something close against Victoria once, but no, I think that's the best. Did I get Lloyd out, did I? He was scary to bowl to. Yeah, I know I got Viv the second time. I caught and bowled in both innings. The second one, I had to sort of run and it sort of chipped up and I ran and dived and caught it sort of in one hand right on the ground, you know, and I was pretty confident I'd caught it. But Viv stood his ground. He wouldn't leave until I just had to shovel him off, so he wasn't happy. You didn't want to make Viv not happy, you know. So I was going to say. Anyway. I think I'd have let him stay there, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) And do you think it was that performance that led to your test debut in the West Indies series, that performance for New South Wales? I think definitely, yeah, because it was, I'm not sure of the date when that Shield game took place, but I'm pretty sure that Dutchie Holland and I then got picked for the second test. So Tom Hogan from Western Australia played the first test. We watched a bit of that. We were playing in Tasmania and we watched a bit of that on the TV when they were playing in Perth and that was really scary they were bowling seriously fast and then the second test was picked and Dutchy and I were both picked for the second test and when then when we got to Brisbane I was made 12th man and that was the test that Kim Hughes actually um, broke down at the end of the game and stepped down as captain so I was 12th man in that game and then we went to Adelaide and Alan Border took over the captaincy and I was 12th man again and Dutchy played and then the fourth test Dutchy was dropped from the side and Greg Matthews and I, and I played my first test in Melbourne on a pretty flat wicket. And, uh, and then, of course, we uh, Dutchie was brought back into the side for the Sydney test, which so we who, then won. So, well, just a couple of questions. What was your, before you entered the fray in that fourth test, 
I mean, the West Indies have been utterly dominant, haven't they, in the first three tests. So what was that like looking on from the, the boundary when you were 12th man? Yeah, it was a good spot to be, 12th man rather yeah. than playing. But um, <laughs> look, I, I naturally was interested watching Dutchy, great mate of mine, and he had minimal success. Well, they were a very imposing side, not only when they were bowling, but when they were batting, as you sort of alluded to before. So it was quite awe-inspiring to watch them. And I must admit, you know, by the time it's my turn to run out in the field at the fourth test, I'm sort of thinking, I'm not sure this is a great idea or not, you know. so And I actually had five catches dropped off my bowling in the Melbourne test. I ended up with none for And I thought, crikey, I'm going to be a one-test wonder, you know, I'll play with them. Five no, catches. Get... How does that happen? That's incredible. Well, at the time, there was just a thing going around. Um, there was a thing going around where the Australian side seemed to be petrified every time the ball went in the air. But, yeah, I had two catches dropped in two balls by the same player in different positions. So he dropped one over there, moved <laughs> into another position and dropped one in the next ball. So yeah. Viv got 200, but I often joke that I had him dropped. But the yeah. truth being, he was 167 at the time. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I felt as though I bowled okay on a fairly lifeless wicket. Obviously, your your bowling was to the fore when you played for New South Wales against them, but it was actually your batting that was crucial in that test match, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, it was funny. Uh, I batted, I don't know, about probably number eight, I guess. I was batting, uh, went out there in the first innings and was, you know, moderately comfortable. The wicket was very flat. And the funny thing was that Rodney Hogg came out uh, at number 11 and Hoggy had padding top to bottom. You could hardly see any flesh showing. And uh, he came out and he said to me, he said, I'm petrified of these blokes. You're going to have to get the runs. We needed, still needed about 25 or 30 to avoid the follow-on. But to, to Hoggy's credit, he hung around and got, you know, nine or 10 and I got 20-odd or something and we managed to... Uh, avoid the follow-on, but the failing was the next morning, we were not out overnight. It had a cartoon of us walking out on the field and one of us is looking at the other one and says, come on, we can avoid the follow-on. And there was pigs flying over the top uh, <laughs> in the sky. They had pigs with wings flying over the top. So that was just yeah. a little funny cartoon in the paper. So anyway, we proved them wrong. We proved yeah, them. yeah. You put on 43, I think, with uh, Rodney. 43, Hunter. did we? Yeah. Wow. To avoid the follow-on, wow. which was superb. Wow. But then... Not only that, in the second innings then, you were back at the crease again trying to save the match for Australia, weren't you? I think I bored the hell out of them. I batted for about 80 minutes for two. Yeah, as I said, you know, Malcolm Marshall was belting them into the wicket, but the wicket was so flat you could just sort of play them. So I managed to sort of hang in there, and Andy Hilditch, I think, got 100. And he got out, you know, with about 15 or 20 minutes to go, and that was a bit, yeah, it was a bit panicky there at the end just to sort of yeah, make yeah. sure we hung on, so. But undismissed um, in the match against that West Indies attack. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, okay. I fixed that up in Sydney. I made sure I got out. If those catches had stuck as well, then who knows? Yeah. Well, and I sound a bit egotistically, but I took a few catches uh, around that period. I know I took a couple in Sydney and a few in Sydney, I think. Yeah, Richie Benno, uh, my mate still uh, dig me about it, but he said at one stage, Murray Bennett, safest hands in Australia, he said. So, so, so I keep that label very nicely. <laughs> it's on your business card, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you remember about that fifth test? Because, well, a couple of things. Your, your New South Wales teammate, Bob Holland, was, was playing and had a terrific man-of-the-match performance, but you got a lot more success with the ball, didn't you? Some chances started sticking in that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, it was probably, again, some missed opportunities. But look, the thing I remember is on the morning of the game, they named Carl Rackerman, who was the fifth bowler in the group. I uh, saw them 
go over to him in the nets and say, look, Carl, you're going to be 12th man this game. And then I was bowling in the nets and I'm bowling with Dutchie. And I said, Dutchie, they expect us to bowl these blokes out. There's only four bowlers in the side. So if there's only four bowlers in the side, yeah. obviously you've got nowhere to hide. The other funny thing in that game was that they hadn't long had the electronic scoreboard working. And I, we batted really well on a damn wicket and um, Kepler Vessels got 170, I think. When we came out to bowl late in the afternoon, I think on the second day, the opening bowls bowled a few overs and Alan Board asked me to come on and bowl from the Noble end. So I came in and bowled the first ball. Richie Richardson was batting. And the ball just pitched and turned a little bit. And Richie's eyes, he went back and his sort of eyes opened up and uh, the ball went straight through to the keeper. But the Noble stand sort of went up with this big roar came out of the Noble stand behind me. And then they replayed it on the um, screen yeah. and a big roar went up around the ground as if to say we've won. I thought that's a bit premature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was a bit of pressure. There was a high level of expectation, but Dutchy bowled yeah. beautifully. And I think I was able to sort of be a good foil up the other end, you know. Well, you beat them by an innings, didn't you? And you bowled Viv Richards again, didn't you? With an arm ball. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's worth Googling that one, Graham, if you want to. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I never knew about it, but on YouTube, my da- one of my daughters found it or something. And uh, There was I quite a celebration afterwards, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> he had got 200 the test before, if you yeah. know what I mean. So, uh, But yeah, well, the, the celebration was really largely about a plan too because he nearly chopped one into his stumps from an arm ball about three or four hours before. I was chatting to Steve Rickson, the keeper, and he said he didn't pick that and et cetera, et cetera. And then he said, you know, we just talked about it and said, look, I'm not going to bowl an arm ball to him for a few overs and then just try and bowl a good one, you know. And he made it look good by the shot he played. He drew away to sort of cut it and, of course, the ball ducked back in and, and knocked the middle stump over. So it was, you know, a real highlight for me, a highlight of my career, really, to see the great man like that. Definitely. And then as you look back, you know, the celebrations in the dress room after that game, you know, you're playing in your second test for a winning Australian side against that brilliant West Indies team. That's got to be uh, up there with the uh, highlights of your career. Yeah, absolutely. I felt on top of the world. And then we yeah. went into a sort of a one-day series. I played some one-day games against them then, which, again, is hard work because uh, the wickets, you know, weren't quite as receptive and... and but, you know, I had a good game in Melbourne uh, the next game and I played a few games there, but that's that's hard work. And then following that World Series Cup, then it was back to New South Wales to finish off the Shield season. And again, another su- successful Shield season. One thing I was going to pick up on, in the final, you took uh, two for 54, including the wicket of the Australian captain, Alan Border. So I wonder if right. taking that wicket got you on the plane to England. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, uh, well, again, uh, probably the... The way we finished the Test Series 2 against the West Indies probably helped. I felt probably felt pretty confident at that stage of being, uh, there was a lot of rigmarole, really the Rebel Tour to South Africa and what have you, but yeah. I probably felt pretty confident about getting a position in that side. And then they picked the team to go to Sharjah as well before we went to England. Now, Mick Malone told this podcast about the 1977 Ashes, where the majority of the Australian touring party was signed up for World Series cricket. And there are definite parallels to 1985, aren't there, with the, the Rebel Tours to South Africa casting a shadow over that year's Ashes. From your perspective, I understand that you signed up but then decided to pull out. Is that correct? Yeah, look, it was probably it was before I played against the West Indies, so it was uh, probably about the time I went to India, came back from India in September, 
I was approached by the organiser of the Australian side. I then spoke to a couple of my teammates in the New South Wales team who had agreed to go on the uh, on the tour. So uh, there's a great mentor of mine, Warren Saunders, who captained New South Wales and who I worked, I uh, didn't work for at that stage, but I eventually worked with for 30 odd years in his business. So I sought him out for some advice and we talked over it. I was 28 at the time. I played some one day games and been 12th man for Australia, but the money that was on offer was quite significant. So therefore we decided that, yeah, look, this sounded like a good move for me. You know, it was a, more about the financial side of it than anything else. The thing that bothered me is that I was making it very open that you would have a life ban from cricket. You wouldn't play cricket again. And I couldn't sleep. And after about two weeks, and I, worked, I, I realised, I worked out, I thought, well, you know, I've played all my cricket for nothing. I've made no money really in the game and I've loved it. And now I'm making a decision purely based on money. So after about two weeks, I contacted Warren Saunders again. I said, oh, and he said, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it either. So anyway, we got back together. So this was still fairly early on in the piece. This is about October 1984. So I contacted the organiser in Australia and I said, look, I'm not going, I don't wish to go. Anyway, they delayed because what happened? He said, well, look, it really depends on the other players, what their attitude is. And I could see many of them would be nervous if someone starts pulling out. And But look, the long and short of it was that they agreed that I could pull out of it. And so fairly early on in the piece, before I played against the West Indies, I'd already, you know, it already been done deal that I was pulling out. Yeah. In the end, I got fined $10,000 by South African cricket. So mm. I actually came out of it very badly yeah. on the on the negative side. But unfortunately then, when it all came out in March uh, or something around that period, and there was a couple of late pullouts, my name sort of got pushed in with three other players and it was all front page stuff and, you know, which was a bit upsetting at the time because I really had made my own decision much earlier in the piece. So anyway, the long and the short of it is then then there was a big meeting before we went to England in 1985 and the other players were aware of my situation and were quite comfortable with the fact that I'd pulled out well before and made my own decision on it. Yeah, that is a bit rough that, you know, not only did you make your own decision and then you were fined by South Africa as well. It seems like a double win. But again, look, it's a funny one. People occasionally say to me, did you ever regret not going to South Africa yeah. and you know, the money involved? I said, you know what, I've never really, I, I got to go on an Ashes tour. Yeah. Oh, that was the other question you asked, whether I'd always wanted to go on an Ashes tour. Yeah. You know, I was talking about listening to it. And I had always wanted, I had always had this dream of going on an Ashes tour. Yeah. My uncle my uncle said, and I don't remember the conversation, but he says I was about 11 or 12, and he said to me one day, what do you want to do in your life, Murray? And I said, I want to go on an Ashes tour to England. That's what I said at that stage. Was it a happy touring party? I spoke with David Gower, actually, and he said it wasn't the most united Australian team of all time. Do you think that's fair? Look, I think there was some... Yeah, look, I think that's fair. I think there's a couple of factors in that. Alan Border is a great... I played schoolboys cricket with Alan. He's a great hero of mine. I think he was a reluctant captain at that point in time. He became a very good captain. You know, he was sort of thrust into this position... Then there was all the upheaval regarding some people going on the tour that the players may not have necessarily been all that happy about. So, yeah, I think initially it was very much um, a little bit edgy, mm. you know, but, I mean, it was a good group of blokes. They sort of, everyone seemed to get on pretty well. The tour was a very long tour, starting with the one day as first, but it became, yeah, it was a disappointing period for me, Graham. I, I, I was... 
I'd played at Ransbrom the year before. It was a very dry summer and I'd had really enjoyed it. And then the, the summer of 85 was a very wet season. The test matches were all dry, but all the other games were sort yeah. of rain affected. So you never really, we've got very little outdoors practice. Most of the practice was indoors. There's a difference there, particularly if you're bowling spinners. You know, you really want to be outdoors. And, you know, I, I found it hard to get into a bit of a groove. But I was getting geared up to play in the one day as I played the lead up one day games and I was going to play in the Texaco Cup. And then uh, only a matter of days before the first Texaco Cup game, I, was, I walked into an indoor net. My shoes must have been wet. And the very first ball I went up to bowl, my foot went from under me and I tore the ligaments in my right ankle. I was actually on crutches for a week. So I missed the Texaco Cup. Greg Matthews, I think, played in the Texaco Cup. And I, I really, looking back, I think that would have been a great segue into the, um, the season because I needed some bowling under my belt. And then from then on, it was a little bit of a struggle to get some form on the board. I was 12th man in the Lord's Test. They picked Dutchie and I. And then ultimately on the morning, I, I became the 12th man and Dutchie won that test for them. So from that moment onwards, I, I, I was having difficulty getting some form on the board. And as of the summer got a little drier later on and I got some good exposure in, the, in some cricket, I think Border was keen for me to play. It was just a matter of being able to uh, have some form there. So I played in the six tests, of course, as you know. You were released to play in the Lancashire League again, were you, for church? Is that right? Yeah. Ian Callum came down and picked me up. Fortunately, we didn't play against Ramsbottom, but I did get to drop into Ramsbottom a couple of times during that season. Yeah, just it was a good opportunity again to get a bat and a bowl and uh, under a bit of pressure. Well, let's speak about the, the six tests in the second. Just before we do, obviously, then your 12th man or you're watching the other games. Could you kind of sum up how the series went up to that six test? Yeah, I thought we were hanging on. I think we lost the first test at Headingley and then um, won the second test at Lords. It squared things up. And I think we got belted at Edgebaston, which was the fifth test. So it was actually pretty tight at that point. But they won their second test, I think, at Edgebaston. But we really didn't didn't have a good game. And I think Dutchie played in that game and didn't have much success. And I think Jeff Thompson played. So we went on to the Oval with the opportunity to win the test and level the series. But I think everyone was sagging a bit by that stage. You know, it had been a long... And we really didn't put our best foot forward in the um, six tests, you know. Yeah, I was just wondering what the chat was before the game from Alan Border and the senior players, because as you say, you could have squared the series and that would have actually retained the Ashes because you held the Ashes at that point. It was very much a live test match, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think, look, I can't remember specifically, but I know that there was plenty of opportunities and talk about, you know, the chance that we had. And the English press had been a bit unkind about the side throughout parts of the series, about, you know, weakest Australian side ever to come to these shores and that sort of thing. So I think the boys were pretty keen to sort of, you know, put that yeah. at rest. But I do think that they were a bit tired and um, frayed at that stage too, a little bit, you know. The wicket was good. Gower and Gooch gave us a thumping. And I said I got Gower out in Sydney and a few years before that, but he gave me a bit of a touch-up there, so... I don't recall having a lot of catches dropped either, Graham. Not like the one, I think. <laughs> it wasn't one of those days, no. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Mike, Mike Gatting. I remember Mike, I think, I'm guessing to say that he batted behind Gower and Gooch, but they must have put on 300 plus. 351 uh, for the second wicket, yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah, and I think I caught Gower in the gully. Yeah. 
Did I? Yeah, I caught him in the gully, you know, fortunately hung on to a catch. I thought, oh, thank God. Do you remember that catch? Oh. Do you remember who was bowling and what happened? It was either Dave Gilbert, a mate of mine, or McDermott, I would say. Yeah, it was McDermott. It's Craig McDermott, yeah. Ah, uh, McDermott, because he, um, he had a fantastic series. Yeah, caught Gower. Did Gatting come out next? Yeah, he would have been next, number four, yeah. So he just pushed forward to one, and it just turned a little bit <laughs> and got the outside edge and just went gently across the first loop. Alan Border just grabbed a hold of him. It was out, and Gats looked yeah. around and just like, what, what's happening? Yeah, you couldn't yeah. believe it. Like, he's been watching... The guys, you know, it's all get pounded. And then uh, I don't know how many he get, three or four? He didn't get many. But look, cricket is a personal game as well as a team game. As you say, um, Gooch and Gower gave you a bit of a battering. But what was it like to finally step on that pitch, take a wicket, take a catch, you know, be involved in the game? Oh, yeah. Look, the English crowds are fantastic. You know, they really are because they love their cricket. They know their cricket. So it amazes me that the grounds are full. I know they're not as big as the Australian grounds. But the grounds are full every day. Look, I loved the whole English cricket scene. I really did. And I would have liked to have played a more significant part in the series there. So I guess to answer your question, I was really thankful to finally get an opportunity to get out there on the, uh, at least in the sixth test. It didn't quite work out the way I wanted it. But Do you remember batting at all in the match? Because you're actually the last man out when England won oh, yeah. the game. I do remember that because yeah. we rejected a bad light offering from the umpires. I mean... Dave Gilbert was batting with me. and He was batting number 11. I don't know. I probably got 13 or 14, something like that. But I, I'd been out there quite a while. And I felt reasonably comfortable. And I'm not quite sure what our thinking was. While we, and I guess there was probably an inevitability about our situation right. at that stage. And then I got a leading edge to... Um, Les Taylor. Taylor. Les Taylor, yeah, which was disappointing. Because, yeah, I got a leading edge and just popped back to him and... Dave Gilbert still tells me that I let him down badly by getting out then, you know, when he, <laughs> I bet he does. Yeah, yeah. had a chance to make a name for himself. So. What's it like in the dressing room after? Because that's obviously the end of the series. I, I suppose when you first go back into the dressing room, there's disappointment that you've lost the series. But how quickly does that change? And then is there mingling with the English players or what happened that day? Look, I, I seem to remember that whole game being quite bleak in the dressing rooms, you know, because one... When we were in the field for a long time while England put together a, a total that really played us out of the game. And I sort of remember that that it was pretty bleak. The other thing that happened, Graham, was uh, we I told you we rejected the bad light appeal. It yeah. rained all the next day. So no. <laughs> it rained all the next day. So I often thought oh, that was probably a really stupid thing to do. Look, I remember the atmosphere being pretty down. Yeah. down really and everyone being very uh, low on the chops and just really wanting to move on how did you rate that tour and that your ashes debut and did you think at that point that would be a last test for australia no i didn't i didn't I, I was disappointed that i didn't put my best foot forward and i played reasonably well the next season i i came home with a knee injury i, I mentioned about the ankle but whilst i was on crutches my knee blew up and i, I was found to have a torn cartilage in my knee I carried that through the next season, which was a bit of a struggle. And I had surgery at the end of that because you came back and went straight into a, a new shield season. So it wasn't really time to get too much repair work done. No, I thought I, in fact, I think I was a bit unlucky not to play against New Zealand the next year because I had a good game against them in Sydney and the selectors opted to pick Ray Bright for that test match. And then they went on to the tour of India and Ray Bright went there as well. Yeah, look, I thought I would, but... 
From that moment onwards, I started having sort of ongoing knee issues and it did sort of slow me up a little bit. Also, I continued to play cricket after I finished with New South Wales. It was always a little bit of a um, problem that I had to contend with. Yeah, and a question I ask everyone, what did it mean to you to play in the Ashes? Oh, it meant a lot, Graham. I, as, a, as I think you probably got the impression right from when I was a very young boy, I had dreams of doing something like that, of going to England. It was the pinnacle, even though we beat the West Indies in Sydney the year before, I think the Ashes tour for me was a dream. You know, that was what I dreamt. And I know Dutchy Holland was the same. He was 38 or 9 at the time. So you can imagine um, the excitement for Dutchy to go on that tour. And he just loved every minute of it. If I could share one little, have you got time for one little story? Definitely. I've relayed it a couple of times when Dutchy's been present. Um, poor old Dutchy, as you may know, has passed away now. Yeah. But, uh, I was 12th man at uh, Lords, as I said, and Dutchy was playing. Anyway, he went out to bat in the first innings. He was going out as number 11, I think. He went down two levels at the Lords and ended up in the cellar. So he eventually came out on the field some time after the previous wicket had fallen. And uh, Richie Benno, I was, we had the TV going. I'm looking out the door. Richie Benno, the t- TV's here. And Richie Benno said, well, here he is, finally, 39-year-old Robert Holland from Newcastle. He said uh, he'll be able to sit his grandchildren on his knee and tell them about this day, you know, when he first walked out on the lawn. For some reason, and Dutchie's never been able to explain it, the very first ball from Phil Edmonds, he just took off from the crease and ran down the wicket, had this almighty swing. I can't remember whether he was stumped or bowled. I think it was bowled. Very first ball. And Richie, in his unbelievable commentary style, as Dutchie just turned and he had his head down, he's walking off the field, and Richie said, maybe he won't be able to tell his grandchildren. <laughs> uh, that was like yeah. a it was like a minute between he said maybe he won't be able to tell your grandchildren absolute yeah. classic commentary and then just to kind of wrap it up obviously then you had your last couple of seasons for New South Wales when and why did you decide to retire was that because of the injuries or something else yeah well New South Wales I again I got uh, dropped when I was captain I got dropped from the side and it was more because my bowling I hadn't been overly effective with my bowling, even though the side was doing well in the field. Uh, I think that was the reason. And then I played another three or four seasons with St George till about 92. And the last season I had a, a torn rotator cuff in my left shoulder and they wanted to operate on it. And I was playing as a batsman and I just thought I was holding a couple of young blokes back. So I, I actually was about 35 and I ceased playing. I went on a over 35s World Cup to India and had the great West Indians all there again. I got Viv oh, out. He got a few, really? but I got Viv out. I took some painkillers and was able to sort of get through and bowl my nine overs. But, yeah, and then I've been involved in coaching. I was a selector for New South Wales for seven years. I was president of the St George Club for 10 years. I've done quite a bit of coaching with New South Wales. And um, so yeah. I'm, I've been involved in cricket all that time, Graham. I'm still in. Yeah. And how much of an honour was it to be included in the St George Team of the Century alongside oh. Bradman? Oh. Well, if you have a look at the names there, there was four of those were in the Australian team of the century. So wow, it's one hell of a side. It's one yeah. look. It was a fantastic honour because, as I think you've gathered, I spent all my life playing for that club, and then to uh, and obviously was successful there. But to be chosen alongside those players in that uh, group was just extraordinary. I'm very proud of uh, what I've done there, and to be part of that group is pretty good. 
Pretty damn good indeed, and we are delighted to have Murray on board and part of the Once Upon a Time in the Ashes crew, a very welcome addition to the side. Thanks to him for a thoroughly entertaining meander down Ashes memory lane. For the record, that St George team of the century was as follows. Arthur Morris, Les Favell, Sir Donald Bradman, Norm O'Neill, Brian Booth, Alan Fairfax, Ray Lindwall, Nathan Pylon, Murray Bennett, Kerry O'Keefe, Bill O'Reilly and Steve Bernard. Not a bad side, eh? Interesting to hear from Murray that he sought Warren Saunders' counsel when he was offered the chance to go on that Rebel tour. Warren joined us on episode two to talk about Bill Watson and his One Ashes test at the SCG in 1955. You can catch up with that episode in all of the usual places. But that's just about all for another episode. I'll leave you to your cricketing interval of choice, whether that be lunch, tea or dinner. And all that remains is to remind you that Dave Gilbert will be next in, just as he was when he followed Murray to the middle at the Oval in 1985. Stick around for that one. And until then, I've been Graham Barrett. And this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. (laughs) 